again, not to say yeah. that's the end all be all, that's the solution for everybody, but it's a piece of the puzzle. And I think if we only ever think about the one big solution that's going to solve it all, we won't want to do those small things right. that do make a difference on a daily. Yeah. And we realize that as individuals, of course, we have way less of a finger on the weight scale than a large corporation does, but we still have a finger on the weight scale. I think that one of the biggest things that Kate and I are thinking about is how to just deepen our social connections and our community. That that is one of the best things that we can do for like climate resilience for us is to just, yeah, deepen those relationships Mm -hmm. locally. And that includes with customers, Mm -hmm. but also just like neighbors and other farmers Mm -hmm. who are like kind of geographically near enough that we can rely on each other. Welcome to the 329th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, regenerative agriculture, community food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. As I record this podcast, Minnesota is on track to record one of its warmest winters in history. A mid-February snowfall finally blanketed much of the state, but up until then, much of the region was eerily bare and brown extending the drought of 2023 well into 2024. It's one for the record books. Agriculture is on the front lines when it comes to the impacts of climate change. Extreme drought, massive rainstorms, and long periods of high temperatures can have devastating impacts on farmers, particularly if they're growing crops like fruits and vegetables or raising livestock utilizing pasture-based systems. That's why, for the past few years, LSP has been working with University of Minnesota Extension to organize climate resiliency cohorts. These groups of farmers get together periodically to take part in trainings on whole farm management and to share strategies. The participating farmers also have an opportunity to develop plans for creating climate resilient operations. I recently had an opportunity to sit down and chat with two farmers who have participated in climate resiliency trainings. Joan Olson, along with her husband Nick, owns and operates Prairie Drifter Farm in west-central Minnesota's Meeker County. Joan and Nick have been raising vegetables on the farm since 2011, and they currently operate a 150-member CSA. They also sell vegetables to two local food co-ops and three area schools. Tyler Carlson, along with his wife Kate, operates a grass-fed beef operation called Early Boots Farm near Sox Center, Minnesota. They got started in 2012 and also raised lambs and goats as well as some perennial shrub fruit. Tyler and Kate's focus is utilizing perennial systems to produce food as much as possible. A cornerstone of their operation is silvopasturing, which blends wooded habitat with rotationally grazed pastures. They direct market the meat they raise, and Tyler leads the Sustainable Farming Association's silvopasturing and agroforestry initiative. Joan and Tyler provided a fascinating glimpse into how climate change is having serious impacts on two very different aspects of agriculture vegetable farming, and livestock production. Extreme, unpredictable weather may harm a stand of broccoli in a different way than it does a herd of beef cattle. But the overall result is the same. Economic loss for the farm and emotional stress for the farmers. Tyler and Joan shared with me how their farms have suffered as a result of climate change and what they're doing in response. We also talked about the balancing act farmers face these days when it comes to dealing with climate change? Should the focus be on investing time and resources in mitigating the problem so it doesn't get worse? Or simply adapting 
an agricultural enterprise so it can survive in a new climate environment? It turns out the answer is complicated and a bit of a moving target, kind of like our weather. Talking about climate change and, and uh, how farmers are adapting or not adapting to it, um, one of the things I, I've sat in on some of the uh, cohorts that LSP's been doing on climate change and some other meetings and talked to a lot of farmers, I guess one question I just want to throw out for both of you is, is it sometimes as a farmer from day to day to tell the difference between climate and weather? <laughs> I just, that seems like I would have a, I just on, the, on a day to day, you, you understand the big picture thing, but when you're out there in the pasture or in the vegetable plots, is it, it's like, okay, is this climate or weather that's affecting me right now? Yeah, I mean, when I think of when I think of climate change, I simplify it for myself. That I feel like we're spending more time dealing with the extreme events, which we've always had, mm -hmm. but they were far less frequent or less intense in the past. And I feel like the increasing frequency of drought, windstorms, flooding events, like they're just coming far more frequently over, say, a five- or ten-year period, which would be climate. You know, the increasing frequency of those, what used to be outlier events. And yes, there's this steady uptick in, like, winter evening temperatures and stuff like, you know, like you can see this average change as well, which we might also think of as climate. But for me, I mostly am thinking about the amount of time and days that we spend out on, like, what used to be the shoulders of those bell curve, the mm -hmm. bell curve of precipitation, wet, um, you know, temperature, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's the increasing frequency of what used to be infrequent events that I feel the most mm -hmm. when I'm dealing with climate change. I would agree with that. I think the one challenge I find too is I think okay, we've been growing in this farm since 2010, which is a short time when you think about climate. Mm -hmm. And I would question myself a little bit, minus we've talked a lot to the older farmers in our community, and they also are saying, oh, no, this feels different and weird. I'd say on the day-to-day, -day, we tend to be dealing with weather events, but I'd agree with Tyler, and that especially in the spring and the fall, those have felt really less predictable in terms of how we're going to approach the growing season. Mm -hmm. It just feels like there's a less predictable trend in the spring and that fall, which makes management of crop growing and decision-making that much more challenging. Transitioning into kind of how you are dealing with this. So, Joan, could you give me a kind of a... You, you had I had seen you uh, talk a little bit about this before, and you kind of given a, a, almost a laundry list of the changes you've had to grapple with and some of the things that you're seeing on your farm just in since you got started farming uh you know you say it's a short amount of time but it's a it's a long enough time that it's interesting what you you've seen enough seasons now so what, what are you seeing some of those things you're seeing yeah some of the things that we're seeing i would say in the spring having these strange hot periods in the early spring when we wouldn't expect that much heat that early and then flipping really quickly right back to really cold times. Mm -hmm. So I know in the past five, five to seven years, farm, farm friends have had conversations about, ooh, should we be starting things earlier in the greenhouse? And in my mind, I think, eh, no, because I have a feeling a frost is going to come, and then yeah. a frost would come. Mm -hmm. So those kind of strange early hot temperatures in the spring, a lot of heat in the summertime, and then this 
these dry periods have been very challenging mm-hmm. for us as well. This last season in 2023 was the very first time when we were challenged to have cover crops actually germinate, and that's a first. We've never really had a problem with that. Either maybe a small amount of irrigation we had to do, or it'd be some rain event that would be enough to get them going. And this last year, we just couldn't get them going. Then it was paired with really high temperatures. It made that really challenging. Mm-hmm. So I think just, again, like Tyler mentioned, these extremes of really hot periods when we wouldn't expect them. And then also those weather events where we just get a ton of rain all at once and then nothing. I think that's something we really noticed more and more over the years as well. I remember visiting your farm uh, three or four years ago and you were really struggling with how wet it was and then I just was there last fall, uh, late fall, it was dry, it was the opposite problem. Right, yeah. yeah. I think we're finding ourselves having to be very, very nimble and not being able to predict what it's going to be like and have kind of contingency plans for, okay, if this year is really dry, then we have to consider these things. And if this year is really wet, we have to consider these things and we don't know what's coming. So, yeah, yeah, I think also a couple years ago when we had all that, the smoke in the summertime, that Mm. was weird and strange and it felt a little apocalyptic. So those are the things that really stand out to me, just the kind of wild fluctuations in temperature and precipitation. Yeah, that smoke, the the Canadian wildfires, that just, that was... So Tyler, what what are, what are you noticing? What are some of the kind of a list of some of the stuff that you've been noticing? Yeah, I would say the biggest the biggest ways that I I would I would echo a lot of what Joan said with the the strange early spring like heat waves that come right on the heels of winter, which in and of themselves in and of itself is not necessarily a huge effect for us being a perennial like we're not trying to germinate crops or get into fields but it does it is just something i'm noticing as being very strange and then we might go back right into like three or four weeks of cold cloudy weather that just delays you know the early spring grazing season start but the biggest thing is really the whiplash between basically no rain at all you can't catch a thing to Mm -hmm. okay now it's raining and raining and it won't stop it's big rain events it's it's multiple you know rain events per week for months on end or like the snowiest winter on record followed by drought right it's just sort of this we're in one state or the other is what it's felt like over the last three or four years mm-hmm. of course wet periods and dry periods are a normal part of farming but increasingly yeah like i feel like that is my biggest challenge going forward when i think about climate change is that is that whiplash between flood and drought periods mm-hmm. and it's really challenging to address that challenge in a perennial system across multiple years and with the cattle cycle and all these things and then temperature yeah like summer maximum temps if those continue to if we continue to have like multiple weeks of 100 degree heat index then that's also something we need to adapt for with our silvopasture we feel like we've we're doing a lot to mitigate against that and then switching gears i'd say you know with livestock we are still farming in the winter uh, we still have to rear and feed animals all winter long, and like so. For example, this year, compared to this year compared to last year, you know, last year was the snowiest winter on record, and I was plowing snow two, three times a week. You know, very, very different experience feeding cattle, keeping water tanks open. But then this year, <laughs> it's very mild. The cows are quite comfortable right now, mm-hmm. but we're about to enter. I mean, we're in like a record heat spell right now. It's been right. going on for almost like ten days already, and the soil's gonna thaw out. We only have about a foot or less, I would say, of frost right now because it's been such a mild winter. The prospect of feeding 
you know, outwintering livestock for 100 plus days with probably more rain than snow is something that we don't have infrastructure to adequately deal with. I'm used to dealing with that for a week or two on the shoulders of the year in the fall getting into winter and in the spring coming out, sometimes a little longer. Mm-hmm. But yeah, if the prospect is that we look more like Missouri uh, or Southern Iowa for winter, then I need new infrastructure for my herd to get through the winter and mm-hmm. different feeding strategies that we have yet to figure out. Yeah. One thing I heard you say recently that really struck me was you, you feel like springtime these days is just a tug of war between uh, winter and summer. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. I can't remember the last time that I felt like we had spring. Mm-hmm. Except for it felt like spring, like this week. Like this week, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I felt like, oh, this, this is like what May, like April and May is supposed to feel like. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, guess, I guess I should, for listeners, I should, we're recording this on um, February 1st, and we just came off of many parts of Minnesota yesterday, the last day of January of 2024, broke re- all records for for temperature, for high temperature. Uh, just saying to Brian, it was very weird to see my daughter's school outside Fayette in t-shirts yeah. on January 31st. Yeah. That was very strange. So that's kind of over the context of what we're <laughs> what we're recording yeah. this uh, in right now. So very, very timely. Are there, are uh, both of you seeing certain kinds of farming or certain crops or certain techniques that you just simply can't use anymore has it gotten to that point or are you still trying to figure out oh maybe if if we can adapt or whatever we but is there some things you just have to drop either certain kind of crops or certain kind of technique techniques you're using or or anything like that i would say less drop than adapt We've definitely had to do more trialing over the last few years of, of varieties that can deal with higher heat than we were accustomed to before. I'm thinking about broccoli, things like that. So we have switched over a lot of our broccoli to broccolini, mm-hmm. which has a shorter days to maturity, a little less pest pressure, a little less disease pressure. So those are some things we've done. We've adapted tomato varieties, pepper varieties for, for heat. Um, we have a couple of high tunnels on our farm, so we've pulled more crops into the high tunnels. So we don't try to do our first spring carrots out in the field anymore. We pull those spring carrots into the high tunnels so we don't have to worry so much about the cold or the uneven germination or really high rains in the springtime. We have dropped doing field peas for snap peas because we struggled with them germinating when it got too cold and then it would immediately get too hot and they wouldn't grow well. So we've now turned to transplanting our snap peas into our high tunnel where we can just control their their growth a little bit more. So see, there's no major big drops, just a lot of tweaking, noticing what worked, what didn't work, and as I mentioned before, just being a little bit more nimble with how we approach our crop varieties. Mm-hmm. And I should say out of like, growing techniques, we did change our schedule last year. Mm-hmm. So we used to have an 18-week CSA delivery program, and in 2023, we dropped it down to 16 weeks, and a lot of that reason was for just having a little more grace on those edge seasons, those shoulder seasons that we've talked about have been a little hard to predict. Mm-hmm. Um, it took some stress off of us in terms of timing and growing. Yeah, just a little a little less stress in that fall season when we were getting some unpredictable weather as well. Yeah, I would say I really like that framing of adapting. I haven't necessarily found something that we've dropped yet because you still just don't know what you're Mm going to be dealing with and you don't know what's going to thrive. You know, so it's really about leveraging diversity Mm -hmm. and just trying to adapt our practices as best we can. That said, in our silvopasture systems, a lot of the trees, you know, that are like 
native trees to our, our woodlands and forests are under a lot of stress. Some of those under a lot more stress than others. You know, we do a lot of civil pasture with our oak woodlands that have been kind of aforested and sort of taken over by a lot of non-native and native trees and shrubs that aren't historically, you know, supposed to be there. I'm, I'm using scare quotes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but the large oak trees, you know, a lot of those are 180 to 200 year old trees that have always been there mm -hmm. since I was a child walking in these woods yeah. and they're dying and they're dying. They're starting that, that, process is accelerating and I think climate change has a huge hand in that they're also just older mm -hmm. trees you know we planted some red pine and white pine silvopasture I think the white pine is looking like it's going to be more climate adapted mm -hmm. um, based on the models the red pine not so much so we're probably not going to plant more red pine and I'm probably going to interplant other species into those current red pine silvopastures and yeah, like when I'm looking, it's just like we're adapting which species of trees and like where we're going to get those seedlings from, mm -hmm. the provenance of those young trees and where those seeds came from, trying to help bring trees from further south and a warmer climate mm -hmm. further north to our farm. And that's, you know, that's something that's happening across the state with multiple efforts. It's called assisted migration, forest assisted migration. Mm. And yeah, so that's a big part of what we're doing. And I'm seeing that. And I would say, yeah, like just the idea that I'm going to have a single species of pasture, that's just not going to work. Like we need the diversity of morphologies and C4, C3 legumes, grasses, forbs. We need as much diversity as we can get in the stand because we don't know what we don't know what the year's going to throw at us. Right, it's right. very chaotic. I wonder if for you, silver pasture has become even more critical because of the extreme heat that we're getting and, and the importance of shade for the livestock. Is that be, because you were starting it, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I know I remember talking to you when you were first planting the trees and, and thinning out the existing forest on your on your land there. You were fascinated by the idea of silver pasturing, but I'm not sure if shade for the livestock was a number one on the list at the time or in the top three but maybe that's changed a little bit in, the, in recent years with this yeah i mean definitely shade i mean i was really interested in the shade effects for the pasture and the forage itself mm -hmm. certainly when i started i wouldn't have i wouldn't have said that like minnesota summers are brutally hot and mm -hmm. burdensome you know like relative to a lot of the country yeah. though we do have we expect to have a couple weeks at least of pretty high heat index, particularly with our humidity levels, and it can be unbearable. And and yeah, like when when we do experience drought, you know, in the middle of the summer, it tends to be really hot. Mm -hmm. You know, they kind of go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. And so the livestock really benefit dramatically from having actual forage that they can go graze in these shaded systems while maintaining levels of comfort while doing so. And so and yeah, like I've seen. The open pastures that in a normal year, normal year, scare quotes again, yeah. um, are in a dr hot, dry spring, they just they just might as well not be growing anything because they grow so little. At least on our farm and our soils, we have a little bit more drought-prone soils than, you know, a lot of a lot of places. But not as it's not pure sand, but it's sort of in the middle. Similarly, the the native grasses, I have I have been grazing some 15-year-old stands of CRP, mostly big blue stem and forbs should be like pretty drought tolerant from what we understand of prairie 
um, very deep roots, and the C4 photosynthetic pathway makes them a little bit more heat, you know, heat tolerant. Mm-hmm. They they like higher temps, but when it gets really hot and dry, they still really slump dramatically with their production. And the silvo pasture really kind of held its own. It still had you know some reductions, but you could really tell the benefits that the trees were offering by keeping soil temps and the evapotranspiration pressure on the soil and on those plants um, by being semi-shaded. You could just, you could see it, you could feel it, and, you know, you could certainly tell by the amount of grazing days that I was getting per acre. And Mm -hmm. so there was a sense that, like, if I don't know what the, like, I want more silvopasture because I have a better sense of what I can depend on. There's a sense of security, whereas with the others, it's like there's thresholds that if I don't meet, really have major drop-offs in production mm-hmm. and that's really hard to then be in the middle of the summer and dealing with having to think about calling animals emergency feeding and you know, all these things so we're looking at more silvopasture and probably a reduced stocking rate as we go forward you know there's there's a limit to what we can like adapt to mm. and i think that that's that's probably my bigger concern is like we feel like we have practices that can help us mitigate and adapt to the current conditions we're dealing with. I'm not sure that we can design systems locally on my farm that will be viable, really, say, in 2050 or whenever, mm-hmm. you know, we reach some new level of, of climate chaos. I, I just don't know. You know, there's only so many, like, years of drought in a row that you can handle before you really need to get it, string a couple good years together to yeah. rebuild some hay supplies and build, you know, put some reserves back below ground with the pastures. Because even though we do the best we can, we do kind of over rely, we do over sort of utilize the pastures during a drought emergency situation. And when you string three or four years together like that, it can be, it's different than a single season of drought and stress. Listening to uh, you, John and Tyler, uh, it, it reminds me of when we talk about climate change in agriculture. The conversation has seemed to switch a, switch a little bit. It's on the big picture. We haven't given up. People still talk about the role agriculture can play in mitigating climate change. You know, sequestering carbon. Uh, you know, helping make the landscape more resilient. But for far individual farmers like yourselves that I talk to, it's the conversation seems to switch more to how can we adapt to the new climate reality. Is that is that accurate? <laughs> I would say in personal conversations in the farm, yeah, we're probably a little more focused on what we need to do to meet our budget each year, what we need to do to make sure our farm life balance is working out okay, to make sure that we're not overworking in response to the challenges that we're facing but I think actually winter time typically tends to be the time that Nick and I step back and say because during the middle of the summer I'll be honest we'll say do we want to keep doing this Mm -hmm. this is is this is this worth it and in the winter time when we step back we say absolutely we want to keep doing this this is worth it we are a piece of that puzzle okay what can we do in our farm this year this season in the next five years Mm -hmm. to be a positive a positive force on the overall environment and climate i don't know if that's true for you tyler too but it feels like when you're in it you're kind of just what do we need to do to get through but when you can step back a little bit and recognize what you are doing it does feel like okay this is work we can keep doing 
for the long term because we feel really good about it and, and get behind it. And that's why we need long, cold winters. So you have to yes. play back. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was interesting with the winter not really being so much of a winter. We kind of felt like this season never ended, mm. which we, usually there's a good hard stop. Mm-hmm. Where you get to say, okay, you know, for vegetable farmers, yeah. anyway, for annual vegetable farmers, you get to stop and say, okay, done with the farming. Projects get to cease for a little while, take a breather, do other things, come back to it. And this just has not felt like that year for us. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I definitely feel like, you know, in the middle of the season when I'm, yeah, running 75-hour weeks and trying to keep up with the chaos that animals bring to one's life it can be yeah real easy to just kind of be like are we really going to keep doing this for another like are we doing this for another 40 years um but it's true i've made all kinds of investments since november I'm pretty excited about this coming year so yeah i i think you give me like a week off and i'm like right back i'm like yeah. i'm like a complete switch in mindset and optimism yeah when it comes to what well, you were saying earlier about the climate like conversation around like being able to sequester carbon or something and mm-hmm. switching to like more like adapting versus mitigating. I would say that for myself, I feel that I, w- I would say four or five years ago, I was really optimistic and excited about like what agroforestry, the soil health movement, cover crops, right? All these things could do to not only help farming systems adapt, but to actually mitigate mm-hmm. climate change by reducing emissions and sequestering carbon probably at the same time in the same breath right at this point i think from from really diving into it the last five years especially around soil and soil carbon sequestration and the like the sort of um very very complex world that that is and the results the sort of like if you really dig into the science like sequestering carbon in soil is really challenging mm-hmm. to keep it there and to measure it right there's all these problems yeah. and the same with trees like when i look at trees like there's forest fires and disease and outbreaks that take out trees all the time and and i just i just think at this point we're we're going to be it's going to be a big lift to just um, continue producing enough food to feed a very you know hungry world and and like just maintain our, our soil quality i think that should be like a first goal right is to just like stop losing our topsoil um and to stop the degradation of the wildlands and habitats that exist on the corners of our farms and on public lands and private lands all over minnesota and, and the rest of the country so yeah i do think that it's like i'm very much in a like trying to armor and trying to prepare for a very uncertain future climate more than I think I'm going to like fix climate change by mm-hmm. planting trees and doing more silver. you know I, I recognize that with that we're probably going to get some carbon benefits but I also my operation and everyone's operation does use and burns fossil fuels right like we all I'm still driving you know a diesel truck I'm driving cars mm-hmm. I've got emissions related to our livestock and related to hay making and feeding and running the tractor and manure storage and stuff like that and every operation's different but like it's just a really big lift to like get all that you know under control and reverse the direction um, on farms yeah. let alone like offset other industries emissions with agriculture mm-hmm. right and I yeah I guess that's probably an unpopular thing for me to say in the like soil health regenerative ag movement because that's been our like 
that's been kind of a big part of the wind in our sails, I feel like, the last five or six years is this, like, idea that we're going to mitigate. We're going to, like, the soil can hold. You know, you can go read the studies. It says how right. much how much the soil can theoretically hold mm-hmm. or trees, you know, and forest ecosystems and agroforestry systems. But, yeah, I just think at this point I'm, I'm very much focused on just trying to be still viably farming in 2040. I think that's an honest answer, and I do think that people appreciate honesty <laughs> rather than yeah. kind of glossing over things with... A rosy paintbrush. There's a lot of gloss. There's a, yeah, there. and I, I don't think it does anybody any good. So I think that honesty yeah, is yeah. really healthy. I would say too, kind of thinking about what you said, how do we make these decisions? Um, I'll go back to so Nick, my husband, works with the Farm Meetings Program where mm-hmm. they learn holistic management, and we were a part of the first climate cohort. And I will say that going through that big picture thinking really does help you step back and make some good decisions. Mm-hmm. So we revisit our holistic goals every winter. And it really helps us to see, okay, this is more just about making the money this year and getting getting through it. We have some bigger, broader goals that we're also aiming for. And I think some of those long-term picture vision thinkings that Tyler was talking about, they then get enveloped into your daily practice. Yeah. So it's like you said, this isn't the one solution to everything, but it's part of the Swiss cheese, right, that will yeah. aid it and help it. Um, and then going through that climate resilience class, one of the things that we came back to is that we did want to try to offset some of that carbon, the electric use, the fuel use. So we did, we applied and received a REAP grant last year and then put a solar array into the farm last November. And we're excited to see how that can benefit the farm. And we will say that because we put that solar in and we can actively see and are tracking how much we use and how much we produce, we are being more conservative as well and are mm. more aware. Mm. Again, not to say mm. that's the end all be all and that's the solution for everybody, but it's a piece of the puzzle. And I think if we only ever think about the one big solution that's going to solve it all, we won't want to do those small things right. that do make a difference on a daily. Yeah. And we realize that as individuals, of course, we have way less of a finger on the weight scale than a large corporation does, but we still have a finger on the weight scale. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's a good point. And yeah. continuing to go back to those holistic goals and say, well, why are we in this? Why does it matter? What do we care about deeply? You know, these are some of the things we care about deeply, and so we're willing to put energy and effort and time and resources into that, too. Yeah, and speaking of those little things, that, that was the other thing I wanted to ask you is, are there some things, by going through the, the climate cohort or workshops or talking to other farmers or just seeing some other things out there, are there some uh, future adaptations that you folks want to take that uh, you, you've been thinking about or you've been starting on or looking into i mean a lot of my my future adaptations on the farm look right now they do still look like on farm field infrastructure it's mm-hmm. it's windbreaks shelter belts water tanks and some some things that i just keep on chipping away at year yeah. over year and more trees more trees is my answer i'm not saying it's gonna it is not the be all end all for anything right and then yeah like when i'm i'm ready for <laughs> i'm ready to adopt you know just like we we look at like home energy audits. There's all these different like you can you know upgrade your insulation and get new windows and then and then you know put in an air source heat pump. You know there's all these things you can do to try to improve the like environmental calculus of your home and its energy use. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm ready to like start doing that on the farm. I feel like there's a lot of technology out there that um, will be cleaner. You know technology that is just not quite ready. It's not really f- quite financially viable, I think, for a farm of my size to adopt, but I'm I'm waiting for that day. I'm hoping that in the next four to eight years that will be the case, and hopefully I think the federal government has been doing a lot to advance those things and provide for tax 
incentives and rebates and things, and I hope that that continues to help make those things viable for folks. So yeah, it's like all these little things. And I think I think at some point though, the food system, like you said, like it's there's there's so much we can do as individuals. But it's like the strength and the really the ability to like revolutionize and adapt our food system is going to come by working together. Yeah. I think it's there's really there's there are things that I just can't do on my own, and there isn't just like go to the store and buy this piece of tech, and then it's problem solved, right? Like it's <laughs> we need to find different ways of like distributing our product from farm to consumer, or you know how we market and things like that. Because a lot of my emissions probably come from marketing mm-hmm. um, and distributing distributing my product as a local farmer versus actual on-farm emissions and so those are the areas that I like I don't really feel like we're talking about that a lot yet I feel like we're <laughs> we're too busy trying right now to just yeah figure out a farm you know and work on the farm scale but yeah. you know in the next five to ten I do think we need to be looking at like how do we work together from like food shed perspectives on solving uh, these problems and and making our like whole food system supply chains and distribution systems more climate resilient as well, right? Like COVID really disrupted a lot of things and provided for me, I think, a sense of like what future climate disruption will look like in society. And it really exposed the fragility of like our global supply chains Mm -hmm. and how difficult it was to access various goods and services um, very quickly. And so I think about that with climate is like, how how do we create redundancy for like the things that we need Again, that's not something I can do on my own, mm-hmm. but like we somehow need like a public-private effort to make that a reality, so that we're ready for the disruptions we know are coming, right? Like we we've seen COVID, like we should at least be trying to prepare for a similar level disruption. I'm not saying necessarily a pandemic, yeah, but disruptions of that scale. Yeah, well, it's interesting when you're talking about COVID and the disruptions. I feel like that was just all in the news and so big, and and it's kind of as if the consumer base has forgotten about that. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so I think, as you say, that education, they feel like, does really need to be part of that plan going forward. And mm-hmm. we don't have the ability to educate a large population, but we sure do in our customer base. Mm-hmm. So we have leaned into that a little bit more in the last couple of years of being not kind of the whiny farmer, oh, this is so hard, but just like, here's the reality, and this is what it's looking like, this is what changes we're seeing, and just making that education available to the customers that we do reach mm-hmm. so that there is a little more, there is going to be a disruption in the future, yeah. right? And it's as, again, as consumers, we, this country is really good about buffering our consumers from challenges to them. And I think, I think we need to be a little more honest um, going forward mm-hmm. broadly about education that way. More particular to our farm, though, I'd say changing the way we irrigate might be one thing. If mm-hmm. we will continue to have really dry times or sporadically dry times that we can't count on. I can see some adaptations we might need to make with our well to make it a variable speed pump to be a little more flexible and nimble with how we water. Again, changing that schedule and adapting, like you said, the delivery methods. There is a lot of resources that go into delivering your product, whether it's the driving and the fuel, whether it's the packaging that you put it in, Mm -hmm. and potentially needing to rethink that about what can still get us to that we're making a profit point but not over using on resources that add to the issue. And then again, our, our, the way that our farm adapts changes every year because of our kids. And that, mm-hmm. I'm not putting it on our kids, but our family yeah. changes. Mm-hmm. What we did when the kids were babies is entirely different than what we can do now yeah. because we have different family pulls. And I think, again, going back to that holistic management, 
we do have to pull on those things when we think about our farm because they also affect our ability to put so much time into different seasons and um, and making it sustainable for our family because we can't keep farming 10, 15, 20 years in the future if we're not doing it in a right. way that does it without a really big stress load. So, yeah. again, no major monster mm-hmm. investments, but just really continuing to every year revisit what we're doing, what's working, what's not, what do we see coming up in the next five years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the really cool thing about the farming network is it's a really collaborative environment and that in every circumstance that we have found, there's always somebody there who's willing to share with you what they did, what worked, what didn't work, mm-hmm. so that we can all move forward as a yeah. farming community. And we're not we're not kind of siloing our information and keeping mm-hmm. our trails. There really is a sharing environment, which I do appreciate about this community. Well, that reminds me of something I've heard you talk about is your phone a friend mm-hmm. uh, strategy yeah. and your freakout file. Can you talk about yeah. those? Because this is something we need to remember is this doesn't just have affect soil plants and animals it affects people Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so that's i think that's a really important strategy and something people might overlook but can you talk a little Mm -hmm. bit about why that's how you use that and how that's important to you yes so i'm admittedly a little type a and also (laughs) prone to being a little more stressed than my partner is which is a good combination that we don't both have that Mm -hmm. but when things go wrong in the farm i created maybe 10 years ago, this thing that I call the freakout file. Mm-hmm. So if something goes wrong, for instance, I accidentally froze a hay wagon full of plants because we didn't think it was supposed to get that cold and they were all hardening off. Um, so I took pictures, I took notes, I sent myself emails, and I said, hey, this is what happened on this date. It got to this temperature. This is what happened to the plants. And then I'll reply to that email and say, and everything worked out fine. Um, I'll take pictures of that. I'll put it in the same freakout file. So when I have major wet events that killed off crops or major dry events or major heat, I just remind myself in a note, I stick it in my Gmail, I have a file that says freak out file, and I just refer to it whenever I have another event that yeah. freaks me out that's similar or different. And honestly, it just takes stress off for me. Mm-hmm. I say, oh, this has happened before, we can do this again. And I think that gets easier and easier the longer you're in farming. You just see more and more. And every year, we're kind of now to that point where we say, oh, something's going to happen this year that's going to be different and going to be new. And we're going to be able to weather it and roll with it in some way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the phone a friend is we just, we have a, a collaborative group of farming friends that we feel like we can call, email, text on a regular mm-hmm. basis and say, whoa, this happened, what do you think? Or they might text us and say, whoa, this is happening, what do you think, is this going to be okay, what would you recommend? And just feels like a little less lonely because I think that farming can be very, very lonely. It can be very isolating. You just, especially in the growing season for us as annual Mm -hmm. vegetable farmers, you're just on your farm most of the time. And it is really a blessing to have people that you feel like you can call on with no judgment and just get a second opinion. So you're not always just, you know, if you're farming with your partner like we are, you're not always bouncing the same ideas off of your partner Mm -hmm. because that's a lot for your partner to hold as well. And, it, and it's, it's it, for something like that, documentation, observation is key, it sounds like. Oh, it's huge, yeah. A lot of record-keeping goes into it, a lot of spreadsheets and yeah. a lot of notes in those spreadsheets so that we don't have to keep it in your brain. You have it somewhere else that you can process it in, in a more organized manner. At least that works for me. It doesn't mm-hmm. work for everybody, but that's how it works for me. Yeah. What about you, Tyler? Is that something that you... Yeah, you try to kind of remind yourself sometimes that, well, this has maybe happened before, maybe not to this extreme, but it, it is, well, there'll be another season and they yeah. observe things. I mean, you know, now that we're like 13 years into this or whatever it is, 12 or 13 years, we're 
just with age and yeah. having seen some crazy stuff and been through some crazy things on the farm, you know, I think we're just better at navigating crises, basically, mm-hmm. and just being a little bit cooler-headed and understanding that, like, you know, we just will work this problem, we'll get through it. Mm-hmm. So 2022 was a year where it was extremely hot and, and dry, um, or 21, 21, 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, very, very hot and dry right away in the spring. We just didn't get any rain yeah. from even the beginning. And it was just, like, every day it was kind of like, okay... It was like, I know that, like, at some point I'm going to have to make some hard decisions. But instead of, like, having, like, a real good sense of when that decision is supposed to be made, you just wake up every day and go to bed every night wondering if you're making the right call. Because I'm in uncharted territory with grazing management and pastures and whether or not I'm harming, you know, things that I've spent 10 years building up. And now I, you know, we, we made it through. I think in hindsight, I made a lot of great decisions, which means that I trust my, I now trust my experience, I think more mm. than I would have five years ago, six years ago. And, and I now have a written plan. Like mm-hmm. I have a plan that I have a like sort of a little like journal of like what happened in 21 mm-hmm. and, is, and then a plan that came out of that. And, and that includes sort of like things that take like decision-making kind of out of my hands a little bit and that allows me to be a little bit more analytical in the face of like a future like when I see this again I have a plan and I know I'm going to follow that plan like pretty closely mm-hmm. and I'm gonna, I know that it's going to be all right at least for that year and so that you know just similar to a freak out file it's just sort of like this I can go back to look at this thing and remember and I know like in what conditions and at what state I'm going to start making certain decisions mm-hmm. and I already have like my herd sorted into thirds, top my 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 favorite group, my middle group, my second, my third group, and if I have to call, I already have it figured out who. Instead of in the moment of stress mm-hmm. and trying to figure out all these other things, like who's going and who's staying, right, and making you know what can be tough decisions. I'm fairly attached yeah. to my animals, <laughs> um, but and so there's a lot of that, and I do think yeah to echo Joan, like I think that one of the biggest things that Kate and I are thinking about is how to just deepen our social connections and our community, that that is one of the best things that we can do for like climate resilience for us is to just, yeah, deepen those relationships mm-hmm. locally. And that includes with customers, mm-hmm. but also just like neighbors and other farmers mm-hmm. who are like kind of geographically near enough that we can rely on each other. We've gotten to where I feel like we don't rely on each other very much anymore because we have the internet of things right. at our fingertips and every piece of technology one could, well, I'm sure new things are being, you know, obviously new things are being invented all the time, but it just mm-hmm. feels like if you have a problem, there's a tool somewhere that you can go buy off the shelf yeah. and go do it yourself. And we have, there's this, I feel like there's this culture too of like, uh, it's, it's like an upper Midwest thing of kind of like not asking for help. Right. And I think that we need to fix, we need to stop doing that and like learn to ask for help and, mm-hmm. and also, and to just, yeah, that like, that's not a bad thing. And people are really, they want to help. That's how we build, maybe that's how we build community actually, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. is like out of actual need versus just some sort of nebulous, doesn't it sound nice thing. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it is nice, you know, yeah. but um, like real need independence is maybe not a bad thing. And so those are things that we are like long range. I think that we're thinking about that level of diversity. I think we're thinking of maybe not being dependent on grass fed beef as much. Mm-hmm. Um, and also just probably not being entirely dependent on agriculture as an income mm-hmm. so that we, when we have really, really rough years, we just make 
better long-range decisions in the moment because we're not like needing that check to come in next month or yeah. three months from now in order to mm-hmm. pay the bills. Yeah. Right. It's interesting that I, that brings us back a little bit to this holistic planning idea, yeah. and, and that not when you have a problem, not just going out and buying something new, but looking at well, how does this fit into my overall goals? How does this fit into how I want to my role? I want to have in the community, and also putting the farmer's quality of life at the same level as the farm's quality of life, so to speak, and the, the soil and the the plants and the animals. So that holistic planning that you've been talking about, I think, is really fits into that even more so now with extreme weather, extreme climate change, that kind of thing. I would agree with that. So we went when we went through that climate resilience cohort. That was one of the things we went through a process of finding out what are your challenges, what are the solutions to those challenges. Yeah. And again, we had in our mind what the solutions were going to be, which is probably mm-hmm. buy something to to take care of it. Yeah. What, and what we came to after that whole long process was the community piece that Tyler just talked about. Mm-hmm. It was leaning to our members and doing more education, mm-hmm. doing more storytelling. And then we had to lean into, I mentioned, having a shorter season. Yeah. We also cut back on staff and cut, ba- cut back on the volume that we were growing because mm-hmm. we knew that if we were going to have another year of drought and we had to water as much as we did the year before, that was going to be really challenging. So having less of a footprint to water this year is really important. So I think, like you said, that holistic management, that kind of bigger picture of thinking getting out of your box of what you think is going to be true for the solution solution, and being more in that creative zone of brainstorming ideas really might lead you to something different that you wouldn't have thought of yeah. before. And that's definitely been true for us over the years. For more information on building farm resiliency, in the face of climate change, see the podcast page for Ear the Ground episode 329 at landstewardshipproject.org. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org or you can call 612-816-9342. By the way, it helps us greatly if you can give Ear to the Ground a rating on whatever podcast platform you utilize. And word of mouth is the best way to spread the news about our podcast. If you like what you hear, tell at least one person about LSP's Ear to the Ground. Thanks to Laura Morgandale, a Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Landstewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening. Thank you.